You're listening to There Ought to Be a Law, the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by me, Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has worked to make cars safer. Hey, listeners. This episode is a compilation of all of our Consumer Autonomous Vehicle Bill of Rights combined into one. Enjoy. I think this might be a good segue into this week's Tao of Fred. Are we ready for it? I can see he's, he's geared up. Ready to go. He's stretching. This week we're going to expand. Fred's going to expand on something we've touched on briefly last week with the with the former, with the current police chief and something we're all very passionate about, which is a do no harm standard for automated vehicles. So take it away. You've now entered the Dow of Fred. Thank you. One of the observations I've made over the last couple of years working in this industry is that a fundamental problem associated with AV development is that there is no set of requirements that the AVs need to adhere to when they're being developed and put on the road or put in the face of traffic, jeopardizing people. So we have in our generous spirit, done the industry a big favor, which is to put together what we believe is a minimum set of requirements to allow AVs to be safely introduced into commerce and into, in fact, into tests on public highways. This is a gap that nobody else seems to want to fill. So we have put together what we call a provisional AV Bill of Rights. Now, this is a set of simple standards to which we believe AVs should conform before they are put into commerce or before they jeopardize the public. There's a lot here. I'm just going to go through them quickly, the whole list, and then we'll come back to the fundamental requirement, which is the first one. So these are written as requirements because engineers like requirements. They tell the engineers what to do. For example, a requirement might be a vehicle shall have four wheels. That's why you see a lot of vehicles with four wheels, because there's a requirement to have four wheels. So this set of requirements is associated with AV-specific features, and we'll just go through them right now. The first one is AVs shall not increase the risk of injury or death inside or outside of an AV. Essentially, they should do no harm before they're allowed into commerce. They should be shown to prove to do no harm. Now, this is not... The objective for AVs, this is just the bare minimum standard that they should be able to demonstrate before they're brought into commerce, that they do no harm. Next, AVs shall secure, verify, and authenticate operational commands and external communications. You don't want anybody breaking into your car. You don't want anybody disturbing the directions you've given to the car. If you want to go to work, you don't want somebody else jumping in and saying, no, let's go to the beach instead. These shall not prejudice for or against any group of living persons with respect to any other group. AVs must respond appropriately to emergency vehicle lights, audible signals, and manual directions from police officers and good Samaritans without endangering either those third parties or vehicle occupants. AVs shall not be programmed to violate motor vehicle laws. AVs shall expedite first responder safety and safe recovery of persons injured or killed after a crash 
including providing means to readily render vehicles safe for first responders, second responders, and bystanders. AVs shall safely transition between political boundaries without increasing risk of injury or death. AVs shall automatically, during safety inspections, confirm the validity of installed software and firmware versions for that vehicle and assess and report nominal capability and or failures of safety and life-critical features that are not visually verifiable. AVs shall include a foolproof capability to expedite safe egress on demand of its occupants. AVs shall not sell or distribute personally identifiable information of any person to any third parties without their explicit consent. AV manufacturers, their agents, representatives, and dealers shall assume legal responsibility and liability for safe AV operation. In no case shall a vehicle occupant who is not actively driving an AV be held responsible for the actions or consequences of its automated controls. AVs shall collect and report operational data to support research and development to improve safety, performance, and reliability. Finally, AVs shall not increase the transportation sector environmental burden over their design lifetime. Now, this is a lot. That's what I was this, saying. Yeah, it is a lot. And we're going to cover these in more detail over time. Today, we'll just talk about the first of those, which is the AV shall not increase risk of injury or death outside of an AV. This is a global standard. So where does that come from? Basically, the NHTSA, National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, in 2017, published a report which established that, let's see, with respect to fatal crashes, a vehicle fault as a critical factor in those fatal crashes only occurs 4% of the time. So Um, what does that mean as a critical fault? We talked about this last week. A critical fault or critical factor, not fault, critical factor is a contributing factor to a crash. It's not the cause of a crash, but it's a contributing factor. So it's not me, driver swerving it's something fundamental fundamental to the vehicle's design and this what nissa showed is that the critical factors associated with the actual vehicle itself and faults associated with the vehicle only happens once every two and a half billion miles driven billion so a billion wow. once in every two and a half billion miles so if you assume the vehicle is traveling at 35 miles per hour that means that once every 70 million mi- million hours driven is associated with a vehicle critical f- fault that could be associated or a critical factor again that could be associated with a death now that's for all causes from a vehicle so you have to apportion that between the av specific features like data processing sensors object event detection and, and response all of these different factors that go into the overall AV operations. So I just assume for the moment, for talking purposes, that half of the allocation of that risk is associated with the AV specific components. And if you do that, you come up with a rough number of about one out of every 150 million hours of operation can be the minimum standard 
for the AV-specific factors, critical factors in a fatal crash. Again, this is not the cause, but it does set a standard for understanding what the digital section performance has got to be for the vehicle in order to not degrade overall highway safety. So it's a number that we're helpfully supplying to the industry as the target for how their software and how their data processing system has got to work. Dear industry, you're welcome. But the second item on there is, and I'm going to paraphrase it and Fred's going to correct me in a second, but basically I think relating to kids is have it so the car doesn't respond to a child saying, I want to go to the beach right now. Let's turn around. Let's change the radio station to something else. Let's have it. Let's have this automated vehicle do something that it shouldn't be doing by a kid. I know that was a really bad explanation, Fred. I have read it. We love you, Anthony. You're coming along. We appreciate that. Hey, thanks. <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, what we've been doing is we came up with a set of performance-oriented requirements for AVs that we think is a void in the marketplace right now because most of the discussion is dominated by boosters of the technology who really want to push it forward, regardless of whether or not it's ready, because they have investment objectives they have to meet. So we introduced these Bill of Rights with these individual requirements last week. We're going to talk about one this week, which is the second one, reading it verbatim. It's AVs shall secure, verify, and authenticate operational commands and external communications. So this is actually very important because if you have an AV, it's operating, hopefully for the benefit of its passengers and the people around it, but it, it needs to be operated safely. There are attack surfaces that are available from a lot of viewpoints in the car that could interrupt the intended operation of the vehicle. As far as I know, there is nobody right now who is working to secure the communications in these respects. So going through that you've got to first of all secure the communications so you can make sure that nobody is breaking into the chain of command or the operational commands of the vehicle and causing unintended and potentially disastrous consequences but even after you've secured it you need to verify the communications because if somebody if you're listening to the radio and it says i'm going to kansas city you don't want the vehicle that's operating on voice commands to decide, well, all right, I'm going to go to Kansas City instead of the Piggly Wiggly. That's very important to verify the actual information that's coming in and make sure that it's actionable and appropriate. And third is you got to authenticate the operational commands. You could have a lot of people talking in a car. You could have a lot of people sending commands from different perspectives. How does the vehicle know who is the authorized person? Uh, in, in the case of your horrible experience, which is, makes me very clamped just to think about it, but the, somebody took over your vehicle who was not supposed to take over your vehicle, and, they, and a really bad thing happened. This could easily happen in an automated vehicle if there's no way to authenticate the command for the vehicle. The, how do we know who the person commanding it is, in fact, the right person? to be commanding that vehicle. This should authentication, security, and verification of the commands should operate on all of the external and the internal communications that the vehicle might have. 
whether that's a radio communication or somebody in the car making a verbal command or a kid touching the touch screen that I know has happened in the past with Teslas where that kid touched the touch screen, all of a sudden the car took off and started to go to that particular location. These are all hazards that are out there that need to be addressed. And we think that this is an important part of what an AV operating system has to include in order to be safe to be used on the highways. Particularly important for kids if there are kids in a car, because yeah, you could have a, a, a kids, somebody wants to go and take their AP English final where somebody else wants to go to the beach. And if everybody's screaming into the microphone, how does the car know which way to go? If you haven't authenticated the command, if you don't know which command to listen to. I think this is a technically very challenging thing to do. It doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. It just means that there are a lot of challenges ahead for the AV design and implementation that I think really need to be addressed before they can be considered safe to use on the highway. Fred, it's, it, isn't it really important to hear, not just from the perspective of humans in the car talking and giving orders, but the command and control structure of a vehicle needs to also prevent Vladimir Putin's friends from taking over vehicles in America. It's broader than just, say, a verbal command and control structure. We need to keep out bad actors from a cybersecurity perspective. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, we do articulate that it needs to secure and verify the commands that are coming in. That includes both cybersecurity as well as could be somebody walking down the side of the road as you're getting into the car who is doing something. Or it could be a malicious actor who's got an iPhone that is tapping into your car through any port on the attack surface. There are places in the car that are using Bluetooth technology to communicate between portions of the car and the car central processor. For example, the air pressure sensors that are inside of the inside of the tires. They have a wireless connection to the rest of the vehicle so that they can send the information about the air pressure. That is an attack surface. Somebody could break into that and have a spurious command. The you would like to have an air gap between the entertainment system and the operational system. This doesn't exist. We, people have in the past taken over vehicle control by breaking in through the communication system and the entertainment system. So there's a lot to be done on securing this. The problem that we see right now is that there's no requirement for companies to do this or to even address it. There's nothing in the SAE, Society of Automotive Engineers, reports or information, J3016 is typical, that says you need to do this. There's nothing in the ISO standards that say you need to do this. We're active in trying to help develop these standards as well. But we think, again, that we need to be on the offense here and say these are minimum standards, not maximum standards, but minimum standards for what's required before these vehicles should be allowed to operate on this. I think I'm going to take some inspiration from Jeanette here. And, and because I don't really know what it takes to get this done. And you said, Jeanette, when you started your organization, you didn't really know what it took to accomplish these things. And the more you knew, the harder it became. So I'll just go in there from a very naive perspective and push all this stuff through in four years. Isn't that how things work? Everyone's just canceled and closed out of this chat. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to start somewhere. We don't know where it's going to end. 
but we think we've got to start here. I think from I think this I love this with the AV stuff. I think from a parent's point of view, this is just the perfect way to keep kids quiet. You shut up! The car will not take us to Bradley's now. Because, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but... We're going back to the AV Bill of Rights, and the third article in that is. AVs shall not prejudice for or against any group of living persons with respect to any other group. This has a few different aspects to it. But first is that we've all heard how AVs are going to make it possible for people with any kind of a mobility challenge to get around, right? You're going to put your three-year-old in it to go to her violin lesson across town. And everything's going to be fine. People who are in wheelchairs will be able to use these People who have difficulties driving, no problem for them because they'll be able to just get in and tell the car where to go and everything will be fine. Okay, let's take these claims at face value and make sure that the AVs, in fact, do not discriminate against persons with physical or mental disabilities that might otherwise restrict their ability to travel. There's another aspect to this too, though, that the logic in the vehicles could potentially prejudice one group of people against another. So how would this work? Let's say that you've got a, an AV that is designed for traveling in an urban environment, and you've designed it somehow so that it works perfectly well for almost everybody, but it works really poorly for somebody else. For example, in any emergency situation, it looks for a blonde-haired child and heads towards that blonde-haired child rather than heading towards a large group of people or people with indeterminate hair color. That would not be acceptable, even though the overall safety profile of the vehicle might be an enhancement compared to a conventional vehicle in that same environment. So you can't, these should not be allowed to prejudice any one group against any other group, even if it results in an overall reduction in the hazard associated with the vehicle. Does that make any sense? Is that clear? It was very specific against blonde-haired children, but I think in in what we've seen a lot with AI systems and whatnot is they, they have a racial prejudice problem now, whereas they have a tough time identifying black skin or darker skin people. So this would be the similar type of thing that the AVs have to be able to recognize this is a human versus a not a human, and humans come in all shapes, colors, and sizes, and you want to design do. a system to aim but for blonde-haired children. But specifically, you should not be able to the hazard to any one group of people by reducing the hazard to any other group of people. Got it. And I use, I use blonde-haired children just to make sure that everybody was outraged by the whole idea that might be a problem. <laughs> blonde-haired children. Oh, sorry. It was just a moment. AVs uh, should not discriminate between acceptable users on the basis of their ethnicity, race, sex, age, or national origin. So if there's a an AV taxi right? Roaming the streets of New York City, looking for passengers. It should not be allowed to determine which passengers it will pick up based upon any observable characteristic of those passengers. It should be open to everybody. Unlike current cab drivers in New York City. As they're required to do. And my understanding is that is not a perfect system and it will occasionally happen that prejudices do creep in, but AVs should be designed to not let any prejudices creep in. And a corollary to that is that the optical identification of humans as users or vulnerable road users 
may not provide different results based on skin color, height, weight, or any other observable characteristics. So somebody cross, somebody in a crosswalk should not be put at comparative risk relative to everybody else just because of how they look or what their characteristics are. And finally, the final point I've got here is that AVs must assure safe ingress and egress of passengers, people getting in and out of the car, without regard to their ability or disability. So let's say that somebody has a mobility problem, they're trying to get into the AV, but the AV has a time limit on how long the door can stay open because they've got profit incentives. They've got places to go and people to meet, right? It should not be allowed, must not be allowed to prejudice the safety of any person because they're trying to get in or out of the car safely. And similarly, they should, in fact, make sure that everybody who is using the vehicle within reason is able to stop the vehicle on demand for any reason and safely egress the car, safely get out of the car. There can be lots and lots of reasons why somebody might want to do that. They see the, they see the vehicle getting into a hazardous situation. There's a fire down the road. Uh, trees are on fire. They don't want to go there. It's got to be really clear and really evident and really easy for somebody to say, stop, I want to get out and have the vehicle respond appropriately so that they can, in fact, get out safely. What does safely mean? That's that's open to a lot of interpretation. But again, somebody with authority should define what it means to get out of a car safely. I will you don't take drop authority it. on. You don't drop a three-year-old on the edge of an interstate highway. You don't you don't stop at the top of a bridge that has no breakdown lane and tell people, okay, this is where you go. There's, this is a, perhaps a subtle but a very important issue associated with the AVs. How do you assure the agency of the people who have not been trained extensively in using this vehicle? How do you enable the agency of these people to stay safe? and to not suffer from false imprisonment by a car that is not properly configured. This last point is great because it makes me think of airlines, whereas the passengers aren't trained to deal with emergency landings and whatnot, but the everyone knows, hey, find where your exit lane is and what have you. And they test systems to make sure everyone can get out of the plane within 90 seconds. But right. you also have trained staff on board ensuring and helping guide people. So what you're saying here with the must be able to safe ingress and egress, is this for an AV taxi service? Because that I can understand. And I think that makes a very cool argument for some designs. Because if I'm in a wheelchair, for example, I, these things would have to have some sort of ramp or lift gate for me to get in and out of easily. But what if I just, I'm buying the new company X, Y, and Z, a super AV at home. Would you require those to have that type of service too? I think so. The AV shouldn't prejudice against, we'll say blind people, right? Sure. You'd say the obvious thing to do is have a big red stop button somewhere in the car and any idiot can smash the stop button. Maybe you can't see it. Maybe there, maybe everybody would say you need to have a, a push button on the floor that you can just stamp on and that'll get people out of the car in a hurry. That's great unless you happen to have no use of your legs and you're in a wheelchair. So I think this issue requires some careful thought about how to implement it and how extensively to implement it. Certainly in the case of rideshare, yeah, you'd want that. 
what are they doing zooks i've got no idea wouldn't it it'd be interesting to know but there is no fmvs requirement for on-demand emergency egress i think there should be yeah because so the first part of this where we're talking about not discriminating against people on the outside so that's the external facing cameras and sensors being able to identify humans in every different shape, form, color, posture, clothing, and whatnot. And I think that's one technical issue, which is probably more software and hardware. Whereas this last one is almost a, uh, a fundamental redesign in some sense of how cars are designed. I think, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. And I think, yeah, making it so anybody can easily get in and out of the car is great. I know manufacturers will hate that, but. Yeah, and I think there's going to be more of a dedicated system for people who have particular disabilities. I don't know if it makes sense to design every AV in America, if we're intending them to be deployed for private use, particularly in that way from an efficiency standpoint. But what we do want to guarantee is that I don't think that AVs are going to be privately owned by anyone for an incredibly long time. I won't be around. So I'll just go ahead and say that this, when AVs do come in the next 20 years, they're going to be owned by a company and parked in that company's garage. They're not going to be in your driveway and they're not, they're going to need to make enough vehicles part of their fleet that can serve disabled communities well and give them the same level of service that everyone else gets in, in, in autonomous vehicles. And until they can do that, we're going to still have a lot of questions about AVs. They've really been pushing their ability to help the disabled community with this in 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 the their entire lobbying approach across the states and the federal government but i'm still looking for a use case where an autonomous vehicle is better for a disabled person than having an uber or a taxi driver who can assist you in and out of the vehicle and possibly even to your door i haven't seen that yet and so i'm not completely convinced by a lot of the arguments made by the industry around this right now. I think that they're using the disabled community as a shield and as a boost to their lobbying abilities. No, I completely agree with you. And consider the simple case of somebody who doesn't have use of their legs, who is trying to get to the airport to take a flight to some other place. They may have luggage. So how does the AV handle the luggage? Is it just going to leave it by the side of the road or how do you do that? So there's a lot of considerations and there'll be a lot of pragmatic considerations and discussions between here and there about how to do it, how extensively to do it, do it for whom. But I think that as a principle, I think it's very clear that the AVs shall not prejudice for or against any group of living persons with respect to any other group. Well, thank you and good morning, world. Uh, Again, Alfred. So we're talking. Uh, <laughs> we don't know what time people are listening to this again. But hey, good morning, world. Oh, what is the what the hello world? That's we'll sure. stick with the programming. I'm programming sorry, standards. I shouldn't interrupt. Um, so we've been going over the AV Bill of Rights, and we've covered three of them in the past. So we're going on to the fourth item now, and. The fourth item is AVs must respond appropriately to emergency vehicle lights, audible signals, and manual directions from police officers and good Samaritans without endangering either those third parties or vehicle occupants. This seems really obvious, but 
you know, uh, police officers are still giving out tickets for failing to move over into the left lane when they're stopping people. There are a lot of restrictions, and they're all dynamic restrictions, about motorist response to a stopped emergency vehicle. This is a very difficult thing to program in because you can't pre-locate or you can't geofence where the emergency action is going to be. Um, you certainly cannot geofence where Good Samaritan might wave their arms or wave a flashlight in front of you to say, you know, don't go down here because the bridge is, is washed out. And we've all encountered this in our routine driving. It happens when somebody's got a car that's broken down or disabled or for a lot of other reasons. So AVs have simply got to do that. They've got to respect and adhere to motor vehicle laws concerning operations with or near law enforcement personnel and other first responders in the vicinity of or near the planned trajectory of the AVs. So, right, it's where the AV is now and where the AV is pointed to be going in the future. So uh, there's there's a lot to this. It's both the current location and the projected location. There can be a lot of inputs about where this police action is, including the uh, conspicuous lights that some vehicles seem to run toward, uh, sound, sirens, just the shape and, and contour of the vehicles that are involved. These have all got to be built into the AV, uh, into the AV logic so that there's no conflict between them. Uh, and importantly, you know, they've got to respond appropriately if uh, some human being is in the road trying to get attention and get people to slow down or avoid a hazard that's in the road. A lot of these are un well, probably all unplanned, but un many of them are unreported and would be unknown to an AV if it's basing its trajectory on a map that's located in its memory or some other input that's not responsive uh, and, you know, concurrently with the development of emergency situations. Surprisingly, uh, there's no standard that requires this. And this goes beyond just conformance to traffic laws because, you know, as we said, a lot of these things will happen perfectly legally, but unusually in unusual circumstances. So, this is a difficult one, but this is uh, something that has been underrepresented in the logic that we've seen on the road so far, uh, a very important parameter for the future. This is a controversial one. This is one that I'm going to disagree with to some extent. This is the AV Bill of Rights. This is AVs shall not be programmed to violate motor vehicle laws. Now take it away. Thanks. This is my forward-looking statement, but I don't think AVs are as good as people driving cars. And even if people are allowed to hedge the laws a little bit, I do not think AVs should be able to do that because as soon as you enter that universe, you've got to say, how far can you stretch the laws before it's acceptable? I think the line in the sand should be, you cannot violate motor vehicle laws. And so let me geek out a little bit here and give you one example why. Let's just think about speed limits, okay? Robots can do a better job than humans in factory operations. If you want to make a piston that has very tight tolerances, there's nothing better than a well-programmed machine to do that. Human beings cannot do that. Back when I was a kid, 
the tolerances that were acceptable were one one thousandth of an inch or what we call a mill. Now they're routinely manufacturing production parts to one ten thousandth of an inch. Now, people often tout high tolerance as equal to good, but somebody once pointed out to me that a good machine is designed so that you can make it work with loose tolerances. I won't get into that, but you know that that's a good point. But driving a car is not like making a piston in a factory. So there's a lot of variables. And one of the things that is really important is, if you remember your physics, coefficient of friction. Okay, coefficient of friction relates to how much force, in the particular case of cars, can be transmitted from the car to the pavement by way of the tires. Right. So if the high, if you have a high coefficient of friction, you have a lot of force, you have a lot of control. If you have a low coefficient of friction, you have less force, less control. So let's think of the example of hydroplaning. Now we've, many of us experienced drivers have experienced hydroplaning at least once in our driving history. And what happens with hydroplaning is you hit water and because of your high speed, you're actually floating on the surface of that water, no longer contacting the road surface. Your coefficient of friction drops essentially to zero. You have no control over the car, you're skating on the surface and that's not what cars are designed to do. Once you've done that and you survive the experience, you get very cautious about approaching situations where hydroplaning might occur because it's not a good thing. But how do you do that? Okay, how does a human being do that? You look at the cars driving ahead of you. If they seem to be unstable, then that gives you a reason to put on to tap the brakes, right? Slow down a little bit. You consider the weather. You consider the road condition. Is it a gravel road? Is it a, a pavement? Has it got ruts in it? Is it a muddy surface? All of these things affect the likelihood of your vehicle encountering a hydroplaning situation. Very complicated. Nobody's ever demonstrated that AVs are better than human beings at anticipating what might be a situation that causes your coefficient of friction to slip down to a very low and unsafe number. Speed limits for roads are based in part on the expectation by the designers that you have a reasonable coefficient of friction between you and or your tires have a reasonable coefficient of friction, right, which gives you adequate control of the car. You'll often see signs in flood conditions that say slow down, deep water, whatever. That's to affect hydroplaning. If your AV is mindlessly exceeding the speed limit, and it does not anticipate all of these things that come naturally to human beings, you can very easily put yourself in jeopardy because you have allowed, the vehicle has allowed itself to exceed the posted speed limit. Or in fact, the posted speed limit that may be on a sign that's transitory or showing up only to the people who are able to read English language. So anyway, that's a long way of saying that there are a lot of examples where exceeding the speed limit, which a human being might do, given their awareness of the road and their experience on the highway and all those kinds of things, would be a really bad idea for a self-driving vehicle to do because it could encounter situations that are simply not designed to and could never be designed to anticipate. Let me jump in because there's yeah, a go. couple spots where I'd want, where I, 
I think speeding is fine. One, and Navy will have to deal with the situation where there's somebody on the road who's driving erratically. You can't tell if they're drunk, they're not paying attention. And so we all speed up to get away from that person because they could be driving slow and erratically and you just try and get away from them. You're on a highway. So you'd want yes. AV to do that. And the second reason is I have to poop. And that's a serious situation where I need to get to the nearest bathroom as soon as possible. I need to poop. Let's go really fast. That's you're accepting the jeopardy of your life versus dirty underwear. That's a choice you are free to make. Let me give you another example, though, as a counterexample. Let's say that you have a nail in your tire and you see that nail or you see the tire is soft as you're getting into your car. As a human being, that's a situation you need to rectify. You know that you can get the tire fixed. So you would probably limp into a repair station get the nail pulled, get the tire repaired, do that, okay? If you are an AV that's merely programmed to drive at the speed limit or exceed the speed limit, you may have, and you probably would have, no awareness of the imminent hazard due to the nail in your tire, okay? So uh, another situation where excessive speed even legally posted speed, might present a real hazard to your operation or the safety of the operation of the vehicle. So yeah, there are situations where you need to get away. They're very rare. I would suggest though, that often tapping the brakes is another way of getting away from erratic drivers. If they, you can slow down and during the distance too. I know you're from New York. I won't get into all the, I won't get into all of that stuff about New York minute, but one approach is to speed up to get past it. Another approach is to slow down and let the hazard move away from you. But sometimes no, they slow choice. down. But I, you also got to keep in mind, I'm living in the future, so a nail in my tire, they're airless. I'm good. Well, in the future, everything will be better. We've talked about that. Okay, so, but, but seriously, so you have a whole section on there making sure they recognize and respond safely to signals, lights, railroad crossings, because we've seen issues with that with current AVs where they fail at them. And we do know that Tesla, again, our, one of our favorite hope to be sponsors, we're still waiting for the check, thank you very much, did in fact program their vehicles on full self-driving to roll through stop signs without stopping. That was, they were called on that by NHTSA and they uh, apparently have since changed that so that you can no longer roll through stop signs. But there's an incremental process where you put the boundaries, you push against the boundaries, the boundaries yield, you push a little harder, this is, what is that theory called? The broken window theory, the broken window principle. I think that applies as much to the software developers for AVs as it does to any other human being. I think some red lines should not be crossed. And my opinion is that AVs sh shall not be programmed or to violate motor vehicle laws. They should conform to the laws as should everybody else. And I wonder, particularly speeding laws in this case, because for, for every mile per hour you're going over the speed limit, isn't there a corresponding loss of ability to respond quickly enough in a crash situation or something like that? Oh, absolutely. Sure. Margins go down. The forces go up. Energy goes up. All of those things happen. But 85% of people are better than average drivers. So 85% <laughs> of people are going to exceed the speed limit perfectly safely. Exactly. And going back to basic physics, the faster I go, the closer I get to approaching the speed of light in which I can become infinite and everywhere. Infinite, infinite. There we go. Great. I think AV manufacturers need to have 
not a WTF button. They need a I have to poop button, and that will guide you to the nearest toilet. But hey, that's maybe we're getting a lot of insight into Anthony's what goes on in his head when he's in. Oh. Yeah, take it, take it easy on the coffee before you get in the car, Anthony. I think that'll help a lot. <laughs> This week, the basic principle is AVs shall expedite first responder safety and safe recovery of persons injured or killed after a crash, including providing means to readily render vehicles safe for first responders, second responders, and bystanders. So that's a mouthful. What does all that mean? These need to be designed so that they don't kill people after a crash. People assume, and I think rightly, that there will be crashes associated with AVs. AVs have a lot of complex design features. We talked earlier today about it. some of them having integrated battery designs, some of them having modular battery designs. All of these have their own way of connecting to the vehicle electrical system. All of these have to be somehow effectively disabled or neutralized in order to make the post-crash vehicle safe to work around. And in a crash, there are typically a lot of emergency personnel in the vicinity of the crash. There are police officers, there are firefighters, there are probably EMS frequently around them. And all these people need to be protected. So how does, what have you got to do? My opinion is that what you've got to do is you need to include and conspicuously display markers and instructions that allow first responders to expeditiously immobilize and render the AV safe. It's not ever going to be appropriate for a firefighter to have to carry 1,500 pages of reference material that they need to look at before they get into a vehicle and try to save somebody's life. If the vehicle is on fire, they've got to act very quickly. So there should be a standardized approach that marks these vehicles and says, pull this lever to break the electrical contact or don't cut here because you have a power cable. There's a lot of hazards associated with EVs that need to be covered, need to be readily visible to the emergency responders so that they don't get killed and so that they can effectively save the people who are inside the vehicle. So the corollary of that is the EVs must provide easily understood markings and instructions to render the vehicle inert and safe for towing or carriage and or storage after a crash. Many EVs and many electric vehicles have reignited after a crash, or first of all, they have ignited after a crash because of the battery contents. We've talked about EV fires in the past. Many of these vehicles will reignite hours or days after a crash due to some defect that takes a while to build up or a short circuit or something happening in the batteries. Sometimes these batteries will be spread all over the crash scene after an EV crash. There's a lot to this. Somebody has got to step up and say, okay, we're going to make it easier for people to save the lives of the people in the car and make sure that these vehicles don't burst into flames when they are towed to a storage lot or if they are going to store into flame, burst into flames, we need to make sure that the people towing them understand that and can effectively sequester them so that they don't cause a conflagration. So AVs must also be designed to protect the first responders, the injured persons, and the bystanders against unintended vehicle operation or emission of toxic products after a crash. 
So I think the protection against unintended vehicle operation is obvious to most people. We have, again, going back to our friends at Cruise, the experience of an EV trying to run away from police who are approaching the vehicle. That's runs counter to this principle. But one of the lesser known parts of this whole situation is that a burning lithium phosphor or a burning lithium ion battery emits chemicals that are in the same chemical company as sarin nerve gas called organophosphates. And this is a potential hazard, not only for the people in the car where the battery is burning, but also to the people around the car who are trying to save the people who are inside the burning car. There's been no discussion in the public that I know of, and certainly nothing by NHTSA, concerning the chemistry of batteries and the emission of toxic products as a battery burns. I think this is an area that's ripe for investigation. Finally, the final point I've got, and it's probably a much longer list that we could go through, but this is an interesting one because it runs counter to all of the libertarian beliefs that people are talking about for electric vehicles, how they save you and make you independent and do all this. But AVs have to include a mechanism for remote emergency disablement by law enforcement. If you've got an AV that's running down a highway at excessive speed, or there's an emergency, the operator or the occupant of the AV is having a medical emergency, but the AV just wants to keep on driving or whatever, law enforcement has to have some way of stopping the vehicle. Right now, their only option is to physically put a barrier in front of the vehicle that the EV is going to crash into. There's got to be a better approach. There's got to be some way for law enforcement to be able to intervene and stop the operation of a self-driving vehicle in order to save the lives of the people who are inside the vehicle or to save the lives of all the motorists or bystanders. These are, Remember, this. there's a lot of energy in these things. They're like hand grenades walking around with the pin pulled. How, I think the question needs to be asked is, how is law enforcement going to enforce the law where you have a machine operating this massive, dangerous vehicle rather than a human being that you can alert and ask to stop the car? What happens when the police stops the car? The lights go on, the siren comes on. There's a lot of ways of contacting the driver. Is the EV going to respond somehow to the flashing blue lights or the officer or the loudspeaker on top of the officer's car? I think this is a huge sleeper issue that really needs to be addressed. How is law enforcement going to do its job? Even going beyond that a little bit, how is law enforcement going to verify that the hidden safety critical factors inside the control system of the vehicle are all operating properly? Whether this is part of a safety inspection or a spot inspection of a highway semi-tractor trailer, right? Police will stop tractor trailers and they'll do a safety inspection. They'll look at the tires, they'll look at the records, they'll look at how long the driver's been driving, the logbook, all those things. How is a how is law enforcement going to look at the status of the safety systems in an EV? when a lot of those safety critical features are hidden and not visible, not visually inspectable. Another that I think deserves, demands a lot of attention. That's a bit of a speech. What do you think? 
I think AVs are great because you have one less person in the car, one less person to save. Passengers, jetpacks. All of them have jetpacks on. That's how they get out. And your role as and your role as CEO of Cruise, what is the applicable quote that we can come to? I closed the article. Just having it open was making me dumber. The applicable quote was, "Look, cops don't pull over AVs. Why would they do it, man?" Yeah, they drive perfect. Cops will never touch them. They don't need to pull them over. And that GM Cruise that was driving away from the police, cop was wrong. In fact, the cops will be riding in AVs. Exactly, yeah. I just want to go cough for a while. Hey, welcome to the Tao of Fred. This week, back to the Consumer AV Bill of Rights, number seven. Number seven. AVs shall safely transition between political boundaries without increasing the risk of injury or death. Excuse me. So right now, there are no national regulations. Every AV regulation comes either from a state or a city or some municipality. <clears throat> There's no reason to expect them to all be the same. So how how would this manifest itself? An obvious example is if you're driving from Ireland to France, right? You put your car in a ferry, and when you go from Ireland to France, you find out that people are driving on the other side of the road. You're going from right-hand drive to left-hand drive. Is your car going to be able to do this? Clearly, if your car, if your AV is only set up for right-hand driving, you're going to have a problem at one end of that trip or the other. So that's a, that's the most obvious example. <clears throat> there are some other examples. Cities may have different map requirements for AVs that are operated within the city. They regulate the resolution of the maps and how often they have to be updated and all those kinds of things. So if you're living in Cincinnati and you drive over to Louisville, are the map requirements going to be the same? Hard to know. There's no regulation that does that. And if you don't have the right map regulations in place, you could be violating the law and you also could be endangering the people around you. Another example is intersection designs, right? Many of us have driven through New Jersey and have experienced the famous New Jersey jug handle intersections, completely different construction and operation from almost any other state. Is your AV going to be programmed to understand the jug handles in New Jersey as well as the handles the normal four corner intersections that you're gonna find in other states? This is a consequential decision because if you're trying to make a left turn, from a, a road that has a jug handle on it and your car doesn't understand that, you're going to be smashing into oncoming traffic that is that is unregulated. Just real quickly, I'm curious because I'm thinking of <clears throat> New Jersey on and off ramps. And when you come switch from one highway to another, sometimes they're, it's very short between you getting out of your lane or else you're stuck in that loop again. And human drivers sometimes are jerks and don't allow you out of that lane. What are they going to do with autonomous vehicles? Do the autonomous vehicles, are they stopping on the road to wait for enough time? Because I'm thinking in my head as a human driver, you have to drive pretty aggressively. And the only way to safely merge sometimes is to go well above the speed limit. Yeah. No, that's um, a great point. Just an aside. Uh, particularly if your AV is designed to never violate motor vehicle laws. So that yeah. could be a problem. We've heard reports from Arizona where people are running some AVs and test tracks or actually on city streets, that some people are making a sport out of harassing the AVs. 
because they know there's no human driver in it. So they'll bump into it, harass it, get close to it, do all kinds of things to interrupt the AV operation. So I, so that's a real issue. Another issue, one state may not require sensible technology that enables law enforcement to interdict out-of-control AVs, right? So this brings up a lot of issues, but if you think of it, let's say an AV is speeding down the road at 80 miles an hour and the driver is asleep. The police have to interdict that, right, somehow, some way. Right now, their only option is to block it by putting their own bodies in front of it. But let's just posit that one state may require the technology that allows the police to stop that remotely, but another state does not. How is your AV going to respond when it crosses the state line? Are you going to have to, as the AV developer, design for the maximum interdiction by police for all 50 states and foreign countries? Or are you just going to punt on that one and decide to do nothing? That's interesting. I like. Are they going to require to have state-specific software yeah. and is that I would assume there be? will have to be some state-specific, at least maybe not entire software packages, but in the code, they have to distinguish between, say, in one state, you have to pull over a lane and slow down to 25 miles per hour if there's an emergency vehicle on the shoulder. In other states, you may only have to slow down. You may not have to move over to another lane. There's going to be tons of these different scenarios, I think, where state laws have diverged that have to be accounted for. Is it going to be set up so it's going to prevent me from driving from to a different state because I don't have the software? What question? We don't know. It yeah. should uh, be, Anthony. There's nobody, you. Is, yeah. specifically yeah. Me? Okay. nobody in a position of authority has addressed that. This is another one of those huge issues that's just been left lying on the road. And the AV developers are probably hoping to just overwhelm the world with incompliant or non-compliant cars before people address it. Another example, and this is we've seen this in San Francisco, right? The AVs don't do very well in areas where there's emergency action going on, particularly firefighting, right? They're running over hoses, they're not stopping. So it would seem that at some point in the future, a city would require some kind of signal or some kind of way of interacting with the AVs that forces them to avoid areas where there's a police action going on or firefighting action going on. That's probably going to happen at the state level if it ever happens or the city level, but it's inconsistent with probably other cities that don't go to the trouble of doing that. A national standard would be good, but both of these issues, this one and the law enforcement interdiction bring up a lot of civil rights issues. They bring up a lot of equity issues associated with police being able to stop vehicles. If, a, if the police can stop a vehicle without any interaction from or awareness of the people inside the vehicle, is that probable cause? How does that work? It's an interesting situation. One other example I will throw in here is that a lot of municipalities are connected by ferries. Some states are connected by ferries. So if you want to cross that political boundary, you also must address the physical limitations and the safety limitations of the ferry or the bridge that are joining those two municipalities. There's no reason to expect them to be different. And you may have to have special behavior when you cross the boundary between those two. For example, if you're going to get on a ferry, there's 
not easy to do. You've got a lot of hand signals. People tell you where to come, what to do, where to park the car, get out of the car, all these kinds of things. It's a very complex operation. People do it pretty well. People respond to the hand signals. For an AV, this is going to be a huge challenge. It's just not right for the companies to leave all these issues lying on the roadside as they push these vehicles out for people to come familiar with them. The companies themselves should get behind the idea of legislation that protects people as well as they're trying to protect their own markets for the AV development, my opinion. End of rant. Back to you. (laughs) Speaking of maturity for engineers, let's go into the Tao of Fred as he discusses the Consumer AV Bill of Rights, number eight, safety inspections. You've now entered the Tao of Fred. Thank you. It's a burden to be considered the mature part of this trio, but I'll try to step up the best I can. I'm being ageist. So this particular principle is very important, and it's a sleeper issue that has received very little attention from my colleagues in the industry regulatory community. During safety inspections, AVs shall automatically confirm the validity of installed software and firmware versions for that vehicle and assess and report nominal capability and or failures of safety and life critical features that are not visually verifiable. So where does this come from? If you have a safety inspection or if you're a state police officer pulling over a heavy truck for safety inspection, you do a visual inspection. You walk around, or you know, the tire treads deep enough, are things falling off the vehicle, are the headlights falling off? Show me your logbook. Do all these things. There's a lot of inspection tasks that you do visually. In AVs, there are at least hundreds and perhaps thousands of safety functions that, that are built into the automatic system that you cannot visualize and that you cannot inspect visually. All of these are important because they're either, by definition, safety critical or life critical. And if the AV is operating completely automatically, essentially every one of them is life critical. Couple examples, the distance between your car and the car ahead that is being used by the adaptive control system. The rate at which your vehicle turns to get into the center of the lane if you have a lane keeping system put on. The the validity of the information coming in from the cameras that's going into the system to determine whether or not an anti-swerve maneuver can be done safely. As you get into the more complex automated vehicles, you just add on more and more safety critical features. If you want to investigate a collision involving one of these vehicles, it's very important to lock down the configuration and to understand what is in the software that is controlling the vehicle. This is a fundamental part of every accident investigation I've ever been involved with. It's not included in any of the AV logic that, or regulations that I've become familiar with. Has somebody tampered with your vehicle and put in software that you don't want to be there. One of the news articles this week talked about thieves breaking into a system by removing a headlight and tapping into the, what's called the CAN bus in your system that integrates all of the electronics. If you have 
a configuration map and you can look out and say, this is not the configuration that's supposed to be there. I've got an, uh, all of a sudden I've got another electronic control unit attached to this vehicle. And what the heck is this all about? You are then in a position to reject that intrusion into your vehicle. But if you're not tracking the configuration of the vehicle, you'd never know. If you do a safety inspection, do you know that the software that's driving the vehicle is in fact the software that's supposed to be driving the vehicle? And if a, if a police officer pulls over a heavy truck, the automated trucks we talked about earlier from Aurora, <clears throat> how do they do a safety inspection unless they can have some insight into what the software driving the truck is doing and whether or not all of the safety functions and safety performance indicators that we talked about earlier are in fact operating within the environment and within the safety limits that the designer has imposed on this. This is very complex. It's a very complex system. Uh, NTSB, when they investigate a crash or a transportation anomaly, however you want to think about that, needs to lock down the configuration. They need to understand what it is. What are all the causal factors that can be contributing to this crash event? And are there systematic defects that they need to address in order to make sure it doesn't happen in other vehicles? It's fundamental that they need to be able to look at the software configuration and the safety performance indicators and whatever else is associated with the safety case for this vehicle to determine, number one, what it is. Number two, has it been tampered with? Number three, if it's the original configuration, do they need to address the safety limits within which the software function operates? This is not easy stuff, but fundamentally, getting back to the, this original issue here, that during safety inspections on demand, AVs have got to be able to divulge that information and report it out to somebody, typically through a CAN bus that, you know, or the OBD that you can use for routine diagnostics on the vehicle so that they know what's in the vehicle, what's working properly, and, per, and even more importantly, what's not working properly. And one other item associated with this if you are in an automated vehicle and you're driving down the road fat dumb and happy reading your book and doing whatever you do in that car you need to know rather quickly if some part of that safety environment becomes defective let's say a bird flies into your camera or a critical camera or the many things that can happen in a complex computing environment don't happen the way they're supposed to network problems, single event upsets, lots and lots of things can happen. You, the occupant, need to know very quickly that things are not okay, that things are not copacetic, and push yourself in a position to stop the vehicle and get out if that's what needs to get done. These are all related issues. Addressing the uninspectable safety-critical features that are in a vehicle is something that the industry needs to step up to and something that needs to be available to regulators and to law enforcement so they can verify that these cars in fact operate the way that they should and they're operating safely because of their current configuration does that make sense yeah, yeah. i think i would say the status quo right now is that this type of information is not available to people that are on scene or investigators or safety inspectors they have to in many sense they have to either 
work with the automaker, as we've seen Inditsa and NDSB have to do with Tesla, where they have to re-engineer the system somehow to figure out what's going on, which is really not an option. So manufacturers are probably not too keen on any changes to this. And I think what we'd like to see is a, a some type of standardization that allowed investigators, inspectors to access the critical safety items that need to be inspected on a vehicle without all of this manufacturer kind of secrecy. You know, they're hiding this. There's a reason to keep these systems safe from a cybersecurity perspective. But there's also very good reasons to allow interested parties, owner and inspectors access to the vehicle data and access to other parts of the vehicle systems to make sure that that ensure continued safety through the life of the vehicle, ownership changes and other things. Privacy and the need to get in and understand the configuration are not exclusive. You can do both. You don't need right. to do one or the other. So it's important to recognize that. And the other complicating issue here is that a lot of the manufacturers now are moving to over-the-air updates for software. Every time you change the software configuration, you become a different computing environment. There's no way right now to verify that every vehicle has, in fact, included the software updates so that what previously could have been tracked using the vehicle identification number probably is no longer a means to do that. If there were only one software configuration associated with every vehicle identification number, that would be great. You could look up the VIN and you'd have the information that you need to determine what the software active in the vehicle is. But that's not the case anymore, right? So the software can change daily. These guys at Cruise said they pushed out a new software configuration 48 hours Yep. After they ran it to the bus. Good for them. And we've uh, seen Tesla do it in shorter time spans. Well, yeah, especially when threatened by consumer reports downgrading of their vehicles. Yes. <laughs> they can move very quickly. Question is, how extensive is this update? And how do you associate that update with the vehicle identification number that the police officer is going to write down at the scene of the crash? This week, it's episode, it's item number nine. I love this one. This is my actually my favorite one. AVs shall include a foolproof capability to expedite safe egress on demand of its occupants. Example, a big red stop button. I like it. You've now entered the Tao of Fred. Thank you. Marcy, I don't know how familiar you are with what we're doing here, but we're trying to put together a consumer-oriented set of minimum requirements that need to be implemented by manufacturers in order to make the AVs acceptable to consumers. And we've developed a list of these, and I don't know if- Full self-driving, not just like levels. Fully self-driving, right? It's a brave new world. And what we've discovered, and I'm sure what you know, is that a lot of the discussion is completely reactive. A manufacturer will propose something, they'll say, we're gonna put it on the highways, and. A lot of people react to that and say, no, because of this and no, because of that. There is no set of standards uh, that industry has adopted or the government has adopted that says, this is what you really need to do. And so we're trying to fill that void with this consumer AV Consumer Bill of Rights. So today we're talking about 
as Anthony just said, including a foolproof capability to expedite safe egress. So why is that needed? Number one, we don't ever want a consumer to be in a position of being held captive by AV logic when they want to get out of the car. There's a lot of reasons why somebody needs to get out of a car that go far beyond what we can imagine right now. Emergency situation, somebody threatening the vehicle, bad weather, who knows what. There's probably a lot of reasons why a human judgment needs to be superior to the machine judgment about when and where to let the passengers out of the car. So we believe that before they're introduced into commerce, the AVs have got to provide a means for untrained occupants to obviously initiate expedited safe vehicle stop and occupant egress. So you can think of a big red button that you want to stop. You can push that and the car will say, okay, I understand. It pulls over to the side of the road, lets you come out. Also, the car does not stop on the top of a bridge where there's no, no breakdown lane to let you out there and say, okay, you're on your own. So it's got to, it's got to be able to find a way to a safe spot to let you out. Also, a big red stop button isn't going to do somebody who has vision problems on a whole lot of good. So there's a lot of talk about use of AVs to expand mobility for people who are otherwise challenged in mobility. But they've got to accommodate the needs of these people as well as the needs of a normally sighted person or a person with normal motor control if they're going to expand the envelope of users to include this expansive group that has been so often talked about. So the AV, the emergency universe has got to address the physical or mental limitations of its passengers. Also, if, if you've got a, if you're sending your three-year-old off to the violin lesson in an AV and you've just plugged in your credit card and off they go, you, you got to make sure that the car is compatible with the capabilities and judgment of a three-year-old to get out of the car if I they need to just, do that. You just invented a whole new horror genre. Cars that kidnap. 2020 is going to have a whole series on this. Yeah, thank you. I didn't know I was that creative, but I like that idea. Ultimately, the AVs must never falsely imprison a person for any reason. If they want to get out of the car, if they need to get out of the car, if they need to stop the trip for any reason. So we think this is a, a, a modest and easily achievable goal before the AV enters service. Maybe not easily achievable. It could be difficult, but it needs to be done because that is something that every person right now who's riding in a conventional vehicle instantly has access to. I don't feel well. I'm, I'm going to throw up. Okay, let's go to the side of the road before you do that, Charlie. And I'd prefer that you do that outside of the car rather than inside. Simple things or and complex things. It's a, But it all relates to that same initiative that you've got to have the consumer, you've got to have the person inside the car in control of their presence within the car for whatever reason. I've gotten a surprising amount of pushback from other people in the regulatory community about this, saying this is it's not easy. We, we we can't really do this. That's fine. If it's not easy and you can't do it, then don't put the car on the road that's going to endanger the occupants. Wait, that's, they're saying that's not the easy part, whereas a fully autonomous vehicle, that's the easier part? 
Sure. Uh, people bring up the people, no. people say, well, you can't do that because you might be going over a bridge at 60 miles an hour and there's, there's a truck passing you and uh, it's raining and there's no breakdown lane. And so you can't have somebody just stop the car and get out. Well, that's true. That makes it difficult, right? You need to put enough judgment and enough capability into the car so it can sense those extreme circumstances and yet still assure the safety of the people who are in the car. Yeah, this week, the towel, Fred, it's the Consumer AV Bill of Rights number 10. You've now entered the Dow of Fred. We've been going through the Consumer Bill of Rights because, in general, the entire conversation about self-driving vehicles has been dominated by the manufacturers, and the rest of us have been pretty reactive to it. So we've gone ahead and put together some standards that, that we think are the minimum standards that should be implemented before any of the AVs are allowed on the road as useful for public interest groups like ourselves, as well as perhaps people who are generating regulations for these vehicles. This one this week is that AVs shall not sell or distribute personally identifiable information of any person to any third parties without their explicit consent. We think this is a sleeper issue because a lot of the mobility modeling that's been done is associated with self-driving vehicles for hire rather than to be owned by an individual. And if you do that, you've got to charge for it, and that would probably use a credit card if somebody is using an AV for hire. If you do that, you're in any case, you're generating tremendous amounts of data in the AV, how fast you're going, where you're going, when you're going, who is with you, perhaps. You've got video coming into the car. You've got video going out of the car. AVs, they're just generating tremendous amounts of data that can reveal intimate details of your passengers' private lives. These, <laughs> and these intimate details can be released. No, it looks like we're losing Fred. Fred, your internet connection's dying, I think. Facebook. These would be intimate details of the type that the folks at <laughs> Tesla were looking at a couple of weeks ago from their vehicles. <laughs> yes. I don't well, know. they were intimate. That's why I dropped off. I think anyway, gotta, intimate details that, you know, state, am I still on? Am I still bad? Oh, it looks like it's getting better. You might want to cut your video. That might help. <laughs> yeah, I could do that, but then you wouldn't be able to see me. But let's It's okay. Anthony's that. already going to edit all of this out. What? Oh, that's a lot of <laughs> all right. So is this better now? Yes. yes. Okay. All right. So you're talking so about... It's selling so, intimate data. data. Oh, look at this. I can't even, I, I'm so much editing this week. Let me it, just, it, all right. So we got the lead in, right? AV shall not sell or distribute. Oh, yes. We were right at the part of a lot of video going in, a lot of video going in. Details. Yes. Right. Where, where you stop. So AV, AVs will generate a tremendous amount of data in any case. Where are you going? When are you going? What are those intimate details? Who are you visiting? When are you visiting them? A lot of information that could be useful to people who are trying to do harm to you. This may be involved in litigation. It could be discoverable. It's important that, as a minimum, the AVs don't provide that information to people 
who are not authorized to get it. Under court order, yeah, you're going to do what you need to do, but you don't want to release that information to anybody without appropriate court orders. All of this information could be associated with you if you're using AVs for hire, because you're probably going to use a credit card, which is traceable to you, to pay for the service. So it's important that this information is very carefully controlled. There are no current standards for AVs that document or even suggest how this information should be controlled. And there are a lot of people, a lot of OEMs that are looking at this information as a possible source of revenue. In our opinion, the scope of the third-party distribution prohibition has got to include not only the authorized user of the vehicle, but also whoever is paying for the trip and the people who are otherwise in the car, additional passengers, and also the people who are around the car. This facial recognition could do a lot about associating this car with other people or places or you or your passengers. We really need to assure that the consumers are protected from the illicit or un, unauthorized use of this data. So, I think there's two sides of that too, Fred. It's it's not just in how you design the vehicles and how they're capturing what goes on in the car, how they're transmitting it. But when you get into a rideshare vehicle now, and I'm sure this isn't going to change a whole lot if these things take over our roads, you're signing an agreement of some sort. And it's not an agreement that you get to go into and edit to suit you. It's a contract of adhesion, basically, where you're signing off whatever's in there. And in there, you're probably going to be signing off some of the use of personal information that they can use to market. We know how 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 much companies and auto companies, particularly these days, want your data and want to be able to use it. But you're also signing off on things like binding arbitration. And you're basically signing a contract that says that if something happens while you're in that AV, you're not going to be able to take them to court. So there's a lot of issues here. It's in some ways, the con this this type of structure, who yourself, who this data is going to, is baked into the contract you agree to at the time you hop in the vehicle. So there's definitely some great care that needs to be taken in this area. I well, love this one. You? I think it might be the hardest one, though, as Michael was saying. It's not as my favorite as we covered last week in episode with the number nine with the big red button. But this is, uh, yeah, I. I I don't know. I don't know how do you, how do we do this? Because call up that vehicle. It's on my phone, and there's some long agreement. You just click, agree, and then the next thing you know, I'm on some Scandinavian website that people have a fetish of watching me driving a car. Sure, especially if the video is available to third parties with your consent. We know the Tesla's casual about the videos that are being generated within the Tesla vehicles and putting them out to third parties, but certainly viewing it in the lab and having a good laugh at people picking their nose as they wait for the light to change. Anyway, this is all subsumed under this basic heading of control of the information and that the person who is generating the information needs to be in control of the distribution of that information as well. I th Michael is correct that this has got to be handled at the state level, or is this something that people talk about at the federal level, or where does this go? Where do we go with this? It's being discussed at on a lot of levels at this point. I think it comes up a lot in some of the right to repair 
laws that we've seen passed in Massachusetts and some that are, there's a federal right to repair bill on the way. That's, those types of bills are what ultimately is going to address who owns the data generated by vehicles, who owns the, the to use that data. And I think there are compelling arguments for manufacturers and automakers to have some of that data. They need a lot of the data that is generated by AVs to for safety purposes. They need to evaluate how passengers are responding in certain types of events and other things. I don't think we're asking for a blanket prohibition where every consumer gets to tell the manufacturer what data they're going to be able to have to address some of these issues. But I think when it comes to personally identifiable information and other things, that has to be put within the control of the consumer. It seems like it would be simple enough to have an opt-in option available when somebody swipes their credit card for one of these rides. <laughs> I think that seems simple, but I just don't know that's something without without a requirement being placed that's going to be put into place. I think it would have to be federally required. I'm not sure what the odds of that would be. I know there are some compelling arguments for manufacturers to have access to your data, whether particularly, I think, as we move towards vehicles having not even just AVs, but vehicles having subscription models where you're buying different components of your vehicle, like heated seats and other things. We're hoping safety components don't make it into the subscription world, but we're already seeing some signs of that. There's a lot to be done here. There's very little federally around this issue and states are struggling to keep up. And I think we're hoping that in the next decade, NHTSA is able to get on top of this issue and issue some sort of rule, at least to protect some of the more, protect consumers from more of the egregious or the, some of the worst incidents we've seen in this area, like folks at Tesla passing around videos of drivers, because that really undermines the general public's faith in some of the technology that we really want to see that relies on cameras like driver monitoring systems, having firm rule in place there to prevent some of the bad actors from doing these types of things would really be great to help push some of the safety technology that I think we're gonna need in the next few years as this conditional autonomy and level three, you can sleep while your car's driving down the interstate type of stuff comes to market. Hey, I've been sleeping in cars for years. I don't even need self-driving. And with that, this episode is brought to you by the word egregious, a word that Michael just made up. And we are I, I don't know why I said it that way, because here's the sound. You've now entered the Tao of Fred. Anyway, this week is the Autonomous Vehicle Consumer Bill of Rights number 11, Liability. Hey, before we start into liability, you fall asleep because it's called liability. Did you go to autosafety.org and donate? You should. We love you more. All right. Take it away, Fred. Thank you so much. All right. I'll read this out. AV OEMs, original equipment manufacturers, their agents, representatives, and dealers shall assume legal responsibility and liability for safe AV operation, period. In no case shall a vehicle occupant who is not actively driving an AV be held responsible for the actions or consequences of its automated controls. Now, this is a little different than the other items we've put in the AV Bill of Rights because this is not strictly an engineering requirement. 
This is really a programmatic requirement that will be implemented through the engineering, of course, as is everything else in the vehicle. But this is a little bit more extensive. It's just fairness, right? The liability for the AV operation has to lie with the entity that's actually controlling the vehicle. This seems like a simple requirement, but it's not obvious. And the manufacturers are not emphasizing liability by themselves in their negotiations with states about licensing AV operation. If no occupant is directly controlling the vehicle, then the liability must be vested in those who designed, built, and introduced the vehicle into commerce. Again, it's just fairness. You can't ask somebody who is not operating a vehicle to be responsible for its operation. So the corollary of this is that no one who's not actually controlling an AV may be held liable for its operation any more than a passenger in a taxi is responsible, <clears throat> excuse me, any more than a passenger in a taxi is responsible for its safe operation. Now there's been an interesting progression on this. In 2018, the Center for Auto Safety documented our position, which is that graduated licensing for autonomous vehicles can and should be put in place. In the same way that when a human being gets a license, you start with the progression. You get your learner's permit, right? Then you pass a test. You, in many states, you get a provisional license that says you as a young person cannot drive between one in the morning and five in the morning or has other requirements. And it's, some states say that you can't have more than one passenger in a the car. There's a lot of different requirements, but they're all a progressive licensing requirement that assumes that your ability to safely control the vehicle in all circumstances will improve as you gain experience driving that vehicle. We think the same thing should hold for autonomous vehicles. And in fact, a paper has recently come out by our friend Phil Koopman and Mr. Wyden titled Winning the Imitation Game, Setting Safety Expectations for Automated Vehicles. And in that article, they talk about establishing what they call the legal fiction of the computer driver. Now, if there's a computer driver as a legal entity, it can, in fact, go through that same progressive licensing process that any other driver goes through. And what they talk about in the paper is that this computer driver should be treated by the courts and then every state in exactly the same way as a human driver is treated. No difference. We agree with that. And as part of that, it should be certified to be safe for operation at the different levels of operation that is intended for its use. We will have this reference on our website as well, associated with this, with this episode. The other item associated with that is our article, or actually it's not an article, it's a response to NHTSA previously that documents our position on the progressive licensing for automated vehicles. That link will be on our website as well. But again, that's been over, it's been five years now since we submitted that. We've seen no action from NHTSA on that. We've seen no action from the states on that. The We think that this is very important. And again, we don't think any person, any human being who's in a vehicle that's being controlled by somebody else can or should be held responsible for the actions of that vehicle, particularly as it relates to injury to themselves 
or to anyone else in the vicinity of the vehicle. Michael, did I? No, you did great. And I think, you know, what we're, we're concerned not only for a passenger or the non-driver who might be the person who purchased the ride in an autonomous vehicle being blamed somehow, we're concerned that one of these cars is going to hit someone and there's no one to sue functionally if you don't have a mechanism that puts blame on some party or puts the burden of proving that the vehicle was negligent or not or reckless or not and these type of things if you don't have a party you can take to court then there is no there's not going to be any retribution or anything for victims of these incidents to seek after they've been injured or, or for their family to seek after someone's been killed and that's Bad, because if manufacturers aren't incentivized to be safe by courts and by trial attorneys, then NITS is the only thing left. And NITS is obviously not doing a good enough job in this area to prevent these things from happening. Right now, they only really have recall authority in this area. And they it, the exercising that is great, but that means that events have already occurred. And exercising the threat of civil suits is something that manufacturers are very careful to avoid and it carries a little more weight in that area as an incentive for them to make these things safer and if you lose a computer driver you lose the ability to go after a manufacturer of these things then you really don't have any incentive for them to make them safe before they introduce them let's pretend i get into a vehicle that we'll call peaches so i get into peaches and i say peaches I need to get to the airport really fast. <laughs> and Peaches, during my saying, hey, get to the airport really fast, runs a red light. Now, Peaches gets pulled over, responds. Who is the officer going to talk to? Because Peaches, all of a sudden, Peaches got shy. And I'm sitting in the back, and the officer's like, where are you going? And I'm like, Peaches and I are going to the airport. And I said, Peaches, get to the airport really fast. Peaches interpreted that to run a red light. How long is a cop keeping me there talking to me in peaches and what's happening here? And the reason and then what happens with the kind of chain of evidence around peaches programming that had it run a red light? Because our previous case where peaches would not drop off their occupant, a person, let's call them Kyle from Cruise, said, hey, we fixed that bug and we released software to do that. So if that person was trapped in that car for a longer period of time and was essentially kidnapped, Kyle from Cruz said, hey, you know what? That evidence is gone. We've just overwritten that software. Have a nice day. It's quote unquote fixed. There seems like there's a whole, you could drive a self-driving truck through all of these things that seem wide open. I know I've just asked four different questions at once, but I'm pulled over for Peaches going, violating a traffic law. How long is this going to suck for my life as they try and figure that out? Yeah. First of all, you're going to miss your flight. Yeah, you've already missed your flights. Yeah, don't worry about that. Also, you violated, you know, the vehicle's already violated one of the Consumer Bill of Rights tenets, which is that it has to follow local laws. It it, it shouldn't be able to run a red light in the first place, regardless of how late you are to the airport. Glare lens, it misread things. There was a glitch. Peaches should have ignored you, and Peaches is going to do what Peaches is going to (laughs) do, but she should have ignored you. Another consideration here is that the officer who is inquiring about this traffic event 
will be unable to get any data out of the vehicle unless they get the cooperation from the original equipment manufacturer as things currently stand. So one of the one of the tenets that we're putting forward is that the public has to have access to or appropriate people have to have access to the data that's stored in the vehicle without the intervention of the original equipment manufacturer or the vehicle manufacturer. The cop isn't going to do that. And so depending on how the day is going, you may be there for a very long time unless the manufacturer has, in fact, provided some way for the cop to inspect the vehicle's safety, its operating system, its safety critical systems. Maybe there was something that failed in the car. Maybe there wasn't. There's a long list of technical items that need to be satisfied before the before the officer can make the simple observation that yes, this happened or no, this didn't happen and get the data associated with the event. None of the technical requirements that would support this very simple procedure are yet in place or required on any EV by any state, as far as we know. Because right now I get pulled over the cop with license registration. We'll have a conversation. We'll get that information from me. With an autonomous vehicle, is it filing a warrant to get that information now? Because there's no one there. Like, how does that proceed? Because I can easily see them running through traffic lights. Of course, there's a glitch in their camera systems. They're seeing their colors wrong. Something happens and they violate some law or they they go speeding in a school speed zone because their cameras didn't read the sign or because it was obfuscated or something like that. Like, how does how does that work? I pull you over. The cop pulls this car over. I can't imagine a cop actually wanting to ever pull these things over because they're like, that's six hours of my day now for a minor traffic infraction. Remember, we had Chief Mason on a few weeks ago and he was talking about the human aspect of being a cop where you stop enforcing laws if it becomes overly burdensome to enforce the laws. And if every time a police officer pulls over an AV, they have to go through a complete investigation that brings, brings out warrants and gets you back to the manufacturer and it's a huge burden on them in their day to simply do what's required to record this very common and hopefully benign traffic violation. They're not going to do it. And maybe that's one of the objectives of the licensing procedures people are advocating right now. I don't know. I can only speculate about that. Michael, what do you think is going on? I think that there's most of these situations, most times, I I think we're not going to run into this issue of warrants and things being required to prove out whether someone ran a red light and that type of thing. So I, I would guess that if we figure out the problem that some law enforcement folks seem to be having just in pulling these things over, how do you issue a ticket, that type of thing? I'm pretty sure GM's going to happily pay all the tickets they get. I doubt they'll be going to traffic court and disputing them and causing an overwhelmingly large amount of red tape. And it, it's just, I don't think it's quite that complicated when it comes to issuing tickets. I think that when it comes to accidents or not accidents, crashes and other it's incidents like that, maybe it becomes a little more complicated in that regard for law enforcement and for collecting crash data. And they'll probably need subpoenas in some cases if 
the manufacturers not divulging the data from the vehicle and that sort of thing. So there's still a lot that states and law enforcement and the manufacturers need to do to communicate and catch up in this area. So let's say you're fundamentally, I'm sorry, fundamentally, they need a way to pull the AV over. There is no way to pull an AV over right now, except physically blocking its path, as far as I can tell. I'm thinking is, uh, so right now, if you get traffic tickets, parking tickets, whatever, moving violations, they're attached to you as an individual, not to you as a vehicle. And so now I'm an autonomous vehicle company, and I'm essentially having a hundred clones of me out there driving. And so if each day, let's say like maybe once a week, each of my cars gets one ticket, like that's 700 tickets a week. At what point are they going to revoke your license? Because if you did this as an individual, you're going to, you would lose your license after I imagine you'd very least you'd lose your insurance coverage, right? Yeah, maybe you should. If you keep violating motor vehicle traffic and maybe even laws that aren't related to safety, parking and all sorts of things, maybe you shouldn't be operating. This is, again, the Autonomous Vehicle Consumer Bill of Rights, number 12. Oh, my word. How many do we have? Are they going to go on forever? Is this the penultimate one? one? This is- I, think we're, I think we're getting down to penultimacy. Yeah. You've now entered the Dow of Fred. Moving ahead here. The Number 12 is the AV shall collect and report operational data to support research and development to improve safety, performance, and reliability. And thanks to Michael for the initiative of putting this in. As a quid pro quo for operating on public roads to evaluate their AVs, there should be a corresponding requirement that such AVs are releasing their data to the public so that people can evaluate how safely these are operating and more importantly, circumstances in which they're not operating safely. This gets back to a lot of the other issues that we're talking about, release of data and the accessibility of the performance data. But this stands alone because the AVs simply must expedite and make it easier for a responsible third-party request to recover and interpret the data that supports investigations of failures, fires, crashes, or cybersecurity violations, all of which can induce safety critical and life critical situations in a an autonomously driven vehicle. And when I say AV, I'm of course being extensive and looking at SAE level two cars, SAE level three cars, level four. Anytime you're in a situation where the driver or the driver's representative is allowed to take their hands off the wheel and have the driver or have the vehicle drive itself for any extended length of time, meaning multiple seconds, is in fact subject to this this requirement that all the data that's associated with the crash needs to be accessible to anybody who is authorized to look at that data. Open standards should be used so that there's no proprietary barriers on interpreting the data that's available in the car. And the reportable data must include unfettered access to relevant geographical, vehicular motion dynamics, parameters, software, firmware configuration, video, and other vehicle or event specific data relevant to an investigation. 
In particular, as we've mentioned a couple of times, you need assessment of uninspectable safety and life critical features that are included in the reportable data. The implication of that is that the manufacturers must design in and build in built-in test information or capability and build-in diagnostic capability so that they are able to understand when the vehicle is operating outside of its designed operating envelope and also to inform anybody who's in the vehicle when it has exceeded the safety limits that have been designed into it. So there's a lot that needs to happen in order to support this particular requirement. <clears throat> Reminding the listeners that if you want to review these in detail, you can go to autosafety.org forward slash AV hyphen bill hyphen. I'll come up with the URL because that's, that's too much. Right. All right. Yeah. We're going to have to okay. clean that up a little bit, but it's AV hyphen bill hyphen oh, of hyphen. Right. And that's need, it. No, need, it's so need, easy. It rolls right off of your tongue. Come on. I love that. We need open standards for our URLs. Come on. I think it's, <laughs> isn't it in the main navigation. It is. You go to autosafety.org and it's the third link up it, top AV bill of rights. Anthony's getting a little defensive about his website no, design, no, but no. that's okay. We'll go with that. <laughs> well, I appreciate that you said forward slash instead of backslash. That drives me nuts. People are like backslash. There's no backslashes in there. Yeah. But getting back to the fundamental issue, we, the public, paid for the damn highways. We, the public, have paid for the infrastructure around the highways. It should not be a free asset for use by the AV manufacturers to turn us all into crash test dummies and just go ahead and use the highways for free without giving anything back to the public. End of rant. Agreed. So we see this problem taking place in the non-AV world a lot involving a lot, some of the Tesla crashes that have been investigated by NTSB and NHTSA where Tesla is uncooperative and providing all of the data that they're collecting. I know that in some cases they've only provided EDR data, which is very limited when they literally are holding thousands of other elements of data down to the millisecond on a lot of the on virtually every crash that takes place in the Tesla in America. So they've been really non-cooperative in a lot of federal investigations around the autopilot and full self-driving issue. And when it moving to vehicles that can actually drive themselves in the AV context, we just want to make sure that the feds and state and local crash investigators are able to figure out what's happening here. And they're not going to be able to do that with the stuff that's on an EDR, which is an ancient dinosaur of a data recorder that you, you have in your vehicle unless you own a Porsche. So that's why we think that open standards are necessary here so that manufacturers can't hide crash data on, behind the cloak of proprietary secrets. It's not. It's These are things that are taking place on public roads. They're impacting Americans. Give us the data so we can figure out what's going on. I like Refresh it. people's memory, EDR is event data recorder, and it only has a very limited set of data for a few parameters from five seconds before the crash or right until about 10 seconds after the crash, something like that. AV Bill of Rights 
lucky number 13. Is this the final one? Yes, This is. is the last one, yeah. For now, okay. It's, there may be more. We're planning to do some work and add things as things come up. So there is no limit on the number of rights that we consumers have when it comes to AVs, right? Yeah. I said this is the towel Fred, not the interruptus of Michael. <laughs> <laughs> This is, yeah, there's no end to what could happen, but as we've configured the AV Consumer Bill of Rights, we think it's a minimum set that must be included in every safe vehicle configuration. And this is the last one. We shall not increase the transportation sector environmental burden over their design lifetime. There's a lot of talk about how switching to EVs is going to save the world. It's going to solve all of our carbon problems and all that sort of stuff. None of this has been established in any kind of firm, well-developed analytical basis. Just to lay it out there, AVs must plan for safe handling, post-deployment protection of humans and the environment, and end-of-life sequestration or recycling of hazardous chemicals and materials used in AV manufacturing or operation. So just a couple of them to give you a taste of what this is all about. Most of the batteries, maybe all of the batteries, have cobalt in them. And cobalt has lots of problems that are associated with it. See, it says here that the National Institutes of Health says, in the mid-1960s, breweries began adding cobalt to beer as a foam stabilizer. Subsequently, heavy beer drinkers began to present with a distinct dilated cardiomyopathic syndrome called beer drinker's cardiomyopathy. You don't want to get that. There's a lot of other problems associated with it, endocrine problems, abnormal thyroid. The use of EVs is going to increase, dramatically increase the amount of cobalt that is in the environment, not to mention the effect on poor people in Africa who are digging this out of the ground in illegal mines and legal mines. It's a very, it's a very messy, dangerous chemical. Another chemical that's prevalent in batteries is manganese. And manganese is known to cause lots of neurological problems, symptoms very similar to Parkinson's disease and people who have been working with it. Again, not a good idea. These are only a sampling of the kind of chemical problems that are associated with EVs that are really unique to and accelerated by the expanded use of these chemicals, cobalt, manganese, etc., in their manufacture. There are resource limitations around the world that are associated with these as well. Giant mines that are being built to produce lithium. It, it must be addressed because it's a in some places, an existential problem associated with the people working on it. The other part of this is that AVs must not increase vehicle lifetime end-to-end -end energy consumption compared to conventional vehicles with due consideration of electrical generation, distribution, conversion, and storage efficiencies, and the impact of unoccupied operation by AVs. Some people talk about AVs circulating in cities and trying to be the yellow cab of the future. There are very few studies that have shown that the expansion of EVs is actually going to reduce the amount of carbon being used, being consumed in, in, as fuel, except in those places where the electric 
grid is dominated by renewable sources. So the largest market or the highest market penetration for EVs right now is in Norway. Norway is almost completely equipped with hydropower. Got a lot of fjords there, a lot of waterfalls. So hydropower, which is renewable, if you neglect the energy investment in building dams and all that infrastructure, is pretty clean. Norway has not demonstrated any reduction in fossil fuel consumption or any other kind of energy consumption, even though it has a very high penetration of EVs. There is no study that I'm aware of that says in the US, energy consumption in any market has gone down because of the conversion to date of vehicles to electric vehicles. You got to remember the fundamentals of this, which is that an electric generating plant, unless it has cogeneration, has about the same thermodynamic efficiency as the engine in your car running at optimum speed. Now, the engine in your car doesn't always run at optimum speed, and that's a problem. That's where the hybrid vehicles come in because they allow you to only run the engine at its optimum speed and use the battery as a buffer so that it becomes much more efficient. And that's really the cause of the mileage improvements due to hybrid car use. If you look at them, you'll see that the highway mileage for those hybrid cars is not too different than the highway mileage for a conventional car. But the city mileage is much, much better simply because the engine's not running except when you really need it to run to recharge the batteries. People fall off the cliff with this and just say, I'm getting an EV, I'm gonna save the world. And I'm equipping my fleet with EVs, I'm gonna save the world. I appreciate the intent and certainly intentions are important, but it may not be the case. And I think it's incumbent on the EV manufacturers to really establish this really established their value as used by human beings in real life. It would have been good to do this before we made a national commitment to EVs, but it's never too late to do the right thing. Michael pointed out that another possible implication of this is that the automated vehicles, most of which are EVs or something like EVs, will occasionally stop in the middle of traffic and cause traffic jams that burn up a lot of extra fuel and all of the people whose transportation is being inhibited by these EVs stuck in the highways, stuck in the roads. That's a secondary effect, but certainly something worth considering as part of the overall transportation structure. So that's, that's the story with the AV Consumer Bill of Rights. We've gone through all 13 now. We've gotten feedback from people. Thank you very much for that. We've gotten a lot of great inputs from people. They've helped us improve it. We really appreciate the opportunity to put these forward and hopefully they'll become part of the requirements that government and industry realize need to be included in the AV rules and regulations. To date, they are not being included in the standards being developed by the SAE or the standards being developed by the International Standards Organization. We think they should be, and we're pushing for that. I think these have all been great, but 13 is the most depressing of the bunch. <laughs> Why couldn't the last one, we couldn't end on a high note, like the big red escape button or something like that. I'm taking the optimist or view that you might say is the naive view and uh, hoping that this pushes more towards a better, better electrical infrastructure and everything runs off of dolphin farts and sunshine. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm distracted right now. Michael has taken over our screens just to to shame us with some weird <laughs> stats of who's talking the most. Turns out, it's are, like, are you seeing that? Yeah, I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, I don't know that. how to get it off my screen and go back to actually seeing you guys, which I'd rather see. Yeah, I clicked um, a button and it really yeah. messed things up here. Way to go! Way to go! Is this time for a yeah, rant? Oh, yes. good time for my rant. Oh, how, what are you why gonna, not? I mean, We're in a okay. dump. So here's the rant. Okay. <laughs> We've seen this whole autonomous vehicle structure before. And, and gentle listeners, many of you are not of my advanced age, but if you were, you would have recalled from the 1950s, a lot of advertisements by General Electric and Westinghouse talking about how atomic energy to produce electric power is going to be too cheap to meter. This mm -hmm. is going to be the best thing ever. Now, you may have noted that Certain uninformed people have said that with AVs, we're going to reduce traffic fatalities by 96%. That's got to be a good thing, right? These two quotes really resonate with me because the power too cheap to meter is very similar to the idea that the AVs are going to completely eliminate automotive deaths. They're very attractive and unachievable objectives. And the reality, though, is that the utilities recognized that nuclear reactors were very much, very hazardous, and they presented a hazard that was too great for any utility to absorb. So they had their friends in Congress pass what's called the Price-Anderson Act, which limits the liability of any utility for nuclear events to far below the actual economic cost of those. So, in fact, the taxpayers have to bear the burden of all of the risk that's associated with nuclear reactors. But as far as the utilities are concerned, this is great. Now we got a green light to go ahead and build all these reactors because power is going to be too cheap to meter and everything's going to be wonderful. And we all know where this nuclear industry has ended up, though, right? Neither too cheap to meter nor particularly safe. And it presents very inviting targets for enemies who might want to attack your country if you've been following the news in Ukraine. What the EV industry, the AV industry is trying to do is establish state laws and federal laws that similarly give them immunity from the risks that are associated with the proliferation of the autonomous vehicles. Now, how is that going to work out? If the model is the nuclear industry, I think we can assume that it won't work out well and that the public will have to assume all of the risks and costs associated with develop, further development of the autonomous vehicles. This whole EV infrastructure, upgraded power lines, improved stations for charging, standards that will allow one charger to be used by another, standardization of the roads and highways and infrastructure and v2x technology someone's going to pay for that and it's going to be you and me if the av companies are successful working with their friends in congress to indemnify themselves from both the risks associated with these vehicle operations and the costs associated with the proliferation of these technologies end of rant <laughs> Welcome to hear your comment. <laughs> Stay tuned for Fred and I's separate podcast on the wonders of nuclear power, where I will talk about the religious order needed.
For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.